Good morning. For those of you who don't know, my name is Chan, and I'm a member here at ECF. Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians 4, verses 6 to 21. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning of verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings, and would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Through the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. This is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. As I teach them everywhere in every church, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love, in the spirit of gentleness? The word of our Lord. Well, if you'll keep your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we're going to hope to wrap up that chapter this morning. And there's a lot in this portion. Um, it's not, a, not an easy chapter. It's got a couple of things that are really difficult to sort through, but um, with God's help, I believe we'll be able to do that in a profitable way for you all this morning. Uh, this, in fact, is now the sixth installment of this letter, this first letter of Paul to this greatly gifted but also deeply divided church at Corinth. And it might be uh, worth a few minutes of our time right here at the beginning to go back and briefly review how we've gotten to where we are this morning. Uh, it's easy to lose your place when you focus just on the, uh, the spot where you are for, for this morning. Uh, 
Uh, and as you know, he's been dealing so far, the Apostle Paul, with the issue of division in the church. And this portion uh, finds us at the kind of the end of his uh, diatribe on that, although in some way he's going to be relating the whole rest of the letter. He's going to be coming back to this issue of division and unity in the church and, and what that looks like, um, how where Christian unity comes from, uh, its challenges, its cures once it's been ruptured. And then the reason why this is so important, why this whole issue of unity is weighing on Paul's mind as he looks at the Corinthian church and their divides. And, and as we look at it today, that, this portion is meant to really draw that to a close for us, to bring it out to its, its fullest. For the church in every generation and in every situation has to come to grips with the fact that disunity among the brethren is always counter to the reality that those who are in Christ are united into one body for one purpose. That, that has to come back to us over and over. Uh, we, we'll talk about um, you know, a local assembly having a, uh, a mission statement, for instance. But that mission statement always has to come into line with what is Christ's overall purpose for the church. We can't, we can't have our own. We can't just launch out into the deep, and that's going to come to us this morning. So let's go back and just review. Um, if we jump back to chapter 1, we'll recall how Paul reminds the saints there in Corinth and all of us that all those in Christ share an identical call. And that call is to be saints. We're all called to be saints, to be holy, to be uh, those people, holy ones, literally, those people who are set apart by God uniquely for his purposes in the world. Every one of us. There's no Christian who falls outside of this paradigm. And as such, there's no one in the body of Christ who is more special or anyone who is less essential to anyone else. A circle like this has a whole bunch of arcs in it. And in order for that circle to be complete, all of those arcs have to come together. If anyone is missing, the circle isn't complete. And there is this necessity for us to know that everyone who is in the body of Christ is necessary. And no one is more necessary than anyone else. But we're all equally necessary in that because it's necessary for each one to be there in order for there to be the whole. We lose that. We, we begin to put importance on people and their gifts. And we're going to be coming back to that this morning by the time we're done. All are essential to comprising the whole. So it is that this call is rooted, as we saw in chapter 1, in the centrality of Christ and leaves absolutely no room for the curse of competition among us. Churches, for instance, are not in competition with each other. At least they shouldn't be. And then certainly Christians are not in competition with one another. There's no room for anyone to claim or to strive for spiritual superiority over anyone else. It just doesn't fit the Bible paradigm. You remember how the church uh, here in Corinth had begun to form cliques around certain personalities. Uh, Paul refers to uh, cliques around himself, around Peter, around Apollos, uh, around Jesus and others, in a grab for each one to establish some sort of spiritual superiority, to, to view ourselves a certain way, to gain standing both within the church 
and within the larger culture. Uh, That was a culture steeped in people seeking fame and recognition and status and ultimately the power that comes from those, very much like our own celebrity-driven culture today in the United States, where that, that being front and center seems to capture everything. Secondly, we saw that our self-confidence is challenged by the cross. In the second part of chapter 1, uh, Jim brought us Paul's challenge to that mindset of seeking fame or celebrity or spiritual superiority. How by God's means of salvation through the foolishness of preaching the cross, God graciously destroys our self-confidence so that all of our trust for our standing before God rests in Christ alone. That there's nothing from us that we bring to the table. We can take credit for nothing in this regard, except as the Puritans used to like to say, the only thing we can contribute to our salvation is our sin, the need for our salvation. So no one can possibly claim a higher ground in Christ than anyone else. No one can possibly gain a, a, a claim a higher ground in the church. And, and to those outside of it, The whole notion of the cross seems foolish. So why do we want their approval? Something's wrong in that equation. Uh, That we would make our chief end in life to be reconciled to God, which is necessary because of our alienation from him by sin, and then finding the remedy to that sin in a man who was crucified as if he were a common criminal in a troubled Middle Eastern Roman outpost. It doesn't make sense to people. And it shouldn't. That's that's why we need the Holy Spirit to open the hearts and the minds of people. Trying to make that look laudable to the world is an exercise in futility. And too often we get ourselves caught up in that particular exercise. So, we have a common call, which is to sainthood. We have this self-confidence challenged by the cross. And then, and then Paul gave us a necessary caution. In chapter 2, we met with a threefold caution. That when we pollute the centrality of the gospel and the simplicity of the gospel with personal advancement, or embrace a salvation that's rooted in human reason above divine Uh, revelation of Christ in a bid to appear more rational and respectable to the culture and fail to distinguish between the spiritual and the natural as scripture lays it out, then we bring the world's values and, and, and uncritically into the church and division can be the only result. Can't get away from it. Again, why this issue is so important, why this whole division thing is really on Paul's mind, we're going to come back to this morning by the time we're done. So a common call to sainthood, self-confidence challenged by the cross, a necessary caution, and then a great concern. In chapter 3, Paul expressed his great concern for the Corinthians, which was their stunted spiritual growth. Something tragic had been happening there. Uh, Divided Christians always reveal spiritual immaturity on someone's part, if not both. But that's just true. And so he gave this diagnosis and then proceeded to show how it stemmed from writing off spiritual truth while at the same time importing the world's wisdom, these twin difficulties. And that proceeding along those lines will result 
in us building into one another's lives or even into our own lives things which will not stand either the test of time and certainly not the test of God's refining fire at the judgment. Those things will be burned up. Things which are not consistent with the foundation of Christ, which was already been laid. He called them wood, hay, and stubble. How they are not pursuing their Christianity in a way which would earn a well done by God, but rather kudos from their contemporaries, both in the world and in the church. And how often we get caught there. We want people to think well of us. It's not bad necessarily in and of itself, but when it becomes the driving principle, we're in deep trouble. The church is in deep trouble. The common call to sainthood, self-confidence challenged by the cross, a necessary caution, this great concern of their stunted spiritual growth, and then, as Jim brought to us last time, a critical disposition. In this first portion of chapter 4, he went on to show how the Corinthians had a practice either of elevating uh, some of those or denigrating them, like Paul or Apollos, in their attempt to gain a higher self-image and a position within the church. They had entered into judging these men and their ministries in a very unhealthy way. Uh, Jim reminded us, we, we, we can leave that to God. We don't, we don't have to enter into that part. So riding on their favorites' coattails, they were assuming that this one or that one was more than what they truly were, which was servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, and whose faithfulness to discharging that office would be judged by God in due time and not by the Corinthians. In that day, it would not be their particular giftedness or supposed outward success or, or, uh, or fame, which would be judged, but their faithfulness. Have they remained fulfilling their roles as servants and stewards along with the hidden motives of their hearts, which will also be judged? And, and that's a necessary component as well, because many a man and woman throughout church history has appeared to serve the cause of Christ powerfully and successfully, who in the final analysis may in fact have been serving only their own desires and interests all along and not Christ's, even though it was done in the name of Christ. Uh, That's the warning Jesus was giving in Matthew chapter 7 when he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? We, we were out there at the forefront and, and, and cast out demons in your name. We did wonders um, and, and, and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will de- declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's astounding that people that we celebrate for doing great works for God may in the end actually be found to be frauds and not be Christ at all. So let's not judge all that before the time. So neither they nor we can safely wear the badge of any of Christ's servants. We must wait to see what commendation, if any, they or we will receive from God on the day of judgment. That's pretty sobering. All of which brings us to the text today. 
chapter 4 and verses four through or 6 through 21, where Paul has four concluding thoughts on the issue and I think extraordinarily clarifying and challenging thoughts on the issue. So basically, he's going to lay it out like this. The core problem is the transgression of biblical boundaries, which we'll see in verses 6 through 8, which leads to a distorted biblical identity. And so there is a call to take up what I'm calling a spectacular ministry. It's a play on words from Paul's use of the fact that they are a spectacle to all men. We'll come back to that. And then to see how disempowering the loss of biblical humility is. The loss of biblical humility actually robs the gospel of its power. And how necessary then this really is to all of us. So we'll take them one at a time. We'll start with the transgression of biblical boundaries. In effect, in the text, Paul says, I told you that the right way to think about those like Apollos and myself, and others for that matter, is to see us only as servants and stewards. I was thinking to myself as I was reading this and studying it this week, yeah, you know, it's, it's not like we have uh, celebrities or personalities to be traded on and pitted against each other like star athletes where you have trading cards where you can see their picture and then on you flip it over and you can read all their stats. Uh, you can actually buy them. Uh, here, here they are. I found them. So you can get the N.T. Wright card or the Luther card or the J.I. Packer card and turn it over and see their books and kind of rate their stats. It's garbage absolute garbage but but in our world just as in the Corinthian world such a thing is even thinkable in this day now I suppose these could be used simply as a tool for understanding church history and and certain people in the church but good golly folks we think that way we pit one ministry against another and we can't compare ministry stats and start cheering for our favorite as though we're on opposing teams. That's totally antithetical to the way the scripture works. And so Paul again says, look, I've applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit. Brothers, that, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. That none of you may be puffed up in favor of, of one against another. Because that's not what scripture was meant to produce. You can't go beyond the scripture and produce this kind of competition between preachers and teachers and ministers and and ministries and churches. It's a perversion. Jesus himself told us in John 5 that the focus of the scriptures is that they bear witness about him. And I know this is going to run counter to an awful lot of Sunday school curricula. Forgive me. It's just the way it is biblically. There is nothing in the Bible about other spiritual heroes. We in the church have often been terrible to our children by saying, you know, you need to be brave like a Daniel. You need to be strong like a Samson. Forgetting that If there's any good qualities in any of these, they're meant by type and shadow to reveal something about Christ, not about the individual. And when we turn that around, our preaching and teaching becomes mere moralism. It it takes on a cast that won't won't do anything for anyone's soul. So instead, we, we go back and it says, don't go beyond what's written. You know how the scripture's written. It's written to reveal Christ. And go there for for that. 
No biblical personage is meant to be our hero, but Christ and Christ alone. All others are, just as Paul told us, they're just servants and stewards. And so, so don't go beyond that. They're set here to do his bidding, not their own. And so he's saying to them, look, you've become a people who celebrate the paper boy who has nothing to do with writing what's in the paper. It's the message that it's important. It's the person that the message is about that's important, not the guy who delivers it. And, and, and to get that mindset is to foment division. We can't help it. And, and that division is really, really important. When Jesus appeared to the two on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, beginning, it says, at Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He didn't say, have faith like Job. He told them, this is what it means when it relates to me. So how can you Corinthians go beyond the bounds of Scripture and create groups and subgroups built around servants and your personal likes and dislikes and ways to look better than others in your own eyes and and when the whole of the Bible has its focus on one person, And that's Jesus Christ and what he's done. And we can ask ourselves the same questions, can't we? How easily we make more of worship styles or Bible translations or music choices or pet doctrines or current causes or our favorite preachers or teachers and our attachment to them. We can make more of all those things than Jesus Christ and him crucified. And when we do that, there's nothing but disaster to be had. The scriptures aren't a celebration of spiritual heroes. They're a revelation of the only begotten Son of God. And laying aside a Christ-centered focus of the scriptures, we inevitably make Christianity about other things for ourselves. And then we'll divide up to cluster around what all those other things are according to our own liking. And this is, this is really pretty contemporary stuff, isn't it? And so also in verse 7, he asks, well, who is it you're trying to appear more than a servant or a steward to? Yourself? The world? Some group in the church? Uh, that's, that's his meaning in, the, in this phrase. Uh, who sees anything different in you? Why are you any different than a servant or a, a steward? How in the world did you arrive at that? What are you you trying to appear as? And then he goes on. Did you make yourself who you are so that you can brag about it? Or did, did even Paul or Apollos make themselves? I mean, folks, I am stunningly handsome, but I'm not responsible for that. And, and, And they weren't responsible for the things that God had brought to them. So if all we have in Christ are gifts of his grace, unearned and undeserved, then where is there any conceivable room for boasting or being puffed up against one another? Where is it? It just isn't there. You've gone beyond the bounds of what is written, he says. And as a result, you're settling For the reward of the pitiful glory you might get from how others see you or how you see yourself, rather than waiting for that glory that you hope to receive when Christ comes 
the only one who in the long run, it's only his opinion that matters, no one else's. So he moves on in verse 8. Already you have all you want. Wow. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And you're in a place way beyond us already. And, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you before the day when we actually will rule and reign with Christ and will share in his glory. You're trying to get glory now and you're trying to get it from men. How does that work? Your, your eschatology, eschatology has leaped way ahead of the present situation. Because we're, we're not here for glory now. We're here for service and stewardship. Glory will come in due time when Christ gives it to us. And, and we want this glory not just from other Christians, but we even want it from the world. We want to make sure we look good to them. That we aren't raving religious lunatics. We want to look wise and successful and desirable to the people outside. Three times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if you do your giving, your praying, or even your fasting to be thought of by other people in certain ways, you've already received your reward by virtue of their high opinions. Enjoy it. Because you'll get no reward from Christ. That is massive. Worse yet, as Jesus would say in John 5.44, don't miss this. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? You get that? You destroy your own ability... To live by true faith when you seek the good opinions of men rather than seeking to please the master alone. Boom! That is astounding. And yet it's... Here it is so evident in the church at Corinth, but beloved, it's evident in America today, especially in evangelicalism. So this isn't just an issue of, gee, wouldn't it be nicer if we didn't have divisions? No, that's not the issue. It's an issue of actual eternal importance regarding our own souls. We're not ruling and reigning with Christ yet. That day will come. And, and Paul says, hey, I, I can't wait for it. I want to be there too. We want to, we want to rule and reign with you. We're not already in the fullness of the kingdom, having received our reward. And so we need to wait and receive our approbation from him and him alone in due time. And if not, as we'll see next, the entire mission of the church gets set set aside. That's why this is so important. And for what? To look good in our own eyes or in the eyes of others. What a supreme tragedy that is. So what is the result of this going beyond what is written? It's a distorted biblical identity. This is just truly vital. Adopting the world's values of fame and success, reputation and status and superiority is a total distortion of our true biblical identity. And it ruins the church for its mission. It's not unity for unity's sake. It's unity for the sake of Christ's mission. 
of Christ's name. We stop seeing ourselves as Christ's people on Christ's mission. But we see something else. I've got my mission. I've got my ministry. I've got my idea. I've got my thing. I've got, I've got this I'm going to champion. No, we are Christ's people bought with his blood and we are set here to be on his mission. And this, this is what we're to be unified around. Matter of fact, Paul's going to say it very explicitly in just a minute. And here's Paul lets us in on what we might properly call, what I'm calling a truly spectacular mission. Look at verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us, us apostles as last of all, like the trailing ones, like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We don't necessarily want to be spectacles. I think, says Paul, I'm of the opinion, would be more, maybe a little closer to the Greek, that it's, that it's God's design to use we apostles, Paul and Apollos, and as, as though we're men who bring up the rear. Like men sentenced to face death as a spectacle, like those who were in the arena at the Roman Colosseum. And we're on display in our weakness and suffering and disrepute specifically to be gawked at by the world for those things, even by the angelic host, as well as you. What's he saying? That as the apostles, the first and specially appointed by Christ, we serve as a testimony to every culture. And this is for all of us. I'm going to come back to that in a second. We serve as a testimony to every culture and in every generation. That despite any social standing, despite any economic situation, any intellectual capacity... Any educational background or, or individual giftedness or connection with anyone who is gifted or famous or otherwise. We are first and foremost Christ's and we are set here to make him and the freedom he gives from that worldly system known. In other words, we're not supposed to look so good to the world. Because we're to be able to be a spectacle to them that we reject those values. Now that's a high call. And it's an uncomfortable one. We are to be Christ's people on Christ's mission, living in such a way as to rebuke human status-seeking, pride, envy, and the seeking of power. That's, That's a different kind of Christianity. It's different than, well, can't we have everything now? Not if we want glory from him. So in, in verse 10, he picks up. You see, we, talking about him, the apostles, he said, we're, we're fools for Christ's sake, but, but you are wise in Christ. Something's wrong here. There's a split. Uh, we are weak, but, but you're strong. You're held in honor. We're we're held in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. 
We, the apostles, we are willingly thought of as fools for the sake of Christ. We don't care what the world thinks or, or what in those terms even other Christians think of us. But you, you're desperate to be thought of as wise. You're desperate to be, to be thought of as just what the world should want. We're weak because the world celebrates strength. And you're doing just what the world does. You're trying to project this image of we've, we've got it all. You seek to be held in honor while in fulfilling Christ's mission to be spectacles to the world. We live in disrepute. So when Paul was on Mars Hill, the very term in the original, when they asked Paul to come up and speak, they said, we want to see, we want to hear what this seed picker has to say. And think much of him. We're not trying to get the benefits of heaven now. We're on mission. That's what we're about at the present time. So, so we continue on that course right up to the present hour. Willingly suffering hunger and thirst and being dressed like peasants and, 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 and powerless against others and even homeless and, and working at the most menial of jobs to support ourselves because Paul, as a working as a tent maker, that was considered a really low rent job. And so the, the philosophers and the wise people and the the hoity-toity of Corinthian society couldn't look at Paul and say, wow, there's, there's somebody to be emulated. And he said, no, that's exactly why I'm doing it. Because, because I've got to live in a way that counters all of that in their thinking. Beloved, this is a strange call to us in prosperous America, isn't it? And so in verse 12, he, so we labor working with our own hands. There's nothing disreputable about that. In God's eyes, although it might be in the world's eyes, when reviled, let me show you how counter we are to the, to the culture. When we're reviled, we bless. No, I thought when we reviled, we sue. Isn't that the current trend in the church? No, when, when, when persecuted, we endure. No, I thought when persecuted, we try to enact laws. When slandered, we entreat. No, I thought when slandered, we take to the web and make sure that we write back. No, we've, we've become and are still like the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. He's not saying that as an ugly thing. He's saying, isn't that cool? It's amazing. So, so we live is to turn the world's wisdom upside down and reject its values. We've, we've adopted a lifestyle that is specifically aimed at doing that, whether they understand it or not, because we're on mission. This is the mission of the church. And in buying into these worldly ways, you've abandoned that mission. You want so desperately to be well thought of. We do what we do. Ultimately, says Paul, because every human being needs to be reconciled to God out of our rebellion against his rights over us as creator and Lord. And there is but one means of that reconciliation, and it is Jesus Christ. And it has nothing to do with economics, status, fame, or how we look to anybody. 
the gospel of his incarnation, his sinless life, his, his substitutionary death, the supernatural resurrection and return to judge the world and fulfill his kingdom. Those are the things that save us. Nothing else can. And nothing the world offers can. And so he extends. He says, look, this is, this is the way I live, but I'm going to press you guys a little bit. He's going to make a call to them to take up this spectacular ministry. And I'll say he makes that call to us. So I do not write these things to make you ashamed. My object in this writing this letter isn't to guilt you into something. Instead, it's to admonish you as my beloved children. I, I want to deal with you for what's critical for your life. Uh, for though you have countless guides in Christ, literally in the original 10,000 guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. I, I'm the one who brought you this gospel, remember? I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so I urge you then be imitators of me. Now this is what he means by imitating him. Take up this lifestyle. I want you to imitate me in this. Drop all this stuff about trying to look good to the world, about trying to find some sort of spiritual attachments that gives you superiority over others in the church. Kill that stuff. Follow me, as we heard in, in Sunday school class, only as far as I follow Christ. But isn't this exactly what Jesus did? Wasn't he contrary to the whole system even there in Israel? I urge you, be imitators of me. And, and that's why I sent you Timothy. I'll come back to that in a second, because he sent him a second-tier guy. Kind of chapped their pride. Uh, this is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. Not just my beliefs, my ways. How I live my life. And as I teach them everywhere in every church, this isn't just for you. So I don't want to manipulate you by shame and bringing all of this to your attention. But as a father who loves his children, I want to bring you into God's reality for the church and for its mission. I want you to wake up from, from what's clouded your thoughts. I want to bring you to a, a place of reality. I just realized I didn't set my timer. We have got 40 minutes. Awesome. He, he wants to challenge them. He doesn't want to crush them. He wants to restore them. He doesn't merely want to reprimand them. He isn't just blowing off steam. He's, he's critically engaged in wanting to see them come back to the center and be the dynamo for the gospel that they've been called to. And so he says there's no question that there's 10,000 people out there who can teach you the ways of Christ. But I'm the one who brought you the gospel. And I'm the one who saw you birthed into the kingdom. So when it comes to all this, imitate me. That's a pretty heady statement. Don't discount me because I'm so counter to your culture. I do that on purpose. Do the same. And so I'm sending Timothy to you who will remind you that this is always the way I live. This is, this is what I teach in every church. Not just you in Corinth. I'm not picking on you, but, but certainly it, it was highlighted with them. So imitate my refusal to celebrate men above Christ and my willingness to be counted as nothing other than a laborer doing my job. 
Paul needed to move them out of a theology that prized giftedness above godliness. The cherished reputation above righteousness. The prized status above sanctification. And delighted in men's accolades above God's approval. And the respectability that they wanted above the responsibility to Christ and to the cross and to his mission in the world. All which leads us to his final point in 18 through 21. And that is the disempowering loss of biblical humility. When we won't take on this humble way of living, we actually rob the church of its power and mission. It's pretty heavy stuff. Now, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if God wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. So what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, a correcting rod, or with love and in a spirit of gentleness? Now, Paul knows human nature well enough that, that with a group this invested in these Corinthian values... They might scoff just a bit at Timothy coming to speak to them. Maybe they don't really need to listen, especially since he's sending them a kind of a second-tier guy. But, of course, that's to challenge their pride. He's no fool. He knows exactly what they need. Will they listen to truth, or will they give more credence to the personality? As a matter of fact, sending Timothy is even more than that. One of the things Paul has to do when he writes to Timothy in 1st and 2nd Timothy is chide Timothy for his timidity. Paul's sending them a guy who is purposely sending them a guy who struggles with being timid. When they want guys who are great orators and can champion the cause, he's going to send them somebody who's just the opposite. Amazing. This is this is godly wisdom, not earthly wisdom. But he says, I am planning to come there myself, and it's my deep desire. I mean, I want to come there in gentleness, not having to ratchet things up and and chasing you like little children. I want to treat you like adults. I want you to take up the responsibility here yourself. As one writer put it, quote, Paul is not one of those pastors who relishes confrontation. Quite the reverse is the case. Nevertheless, he will not allow moral cowardice to relieve him from taking these matters firmly in hand, if such has to be done. As a sensitive pastor, he's reluctant to bring matters to a head, but resolved to do so if there proves no other way forward. His appeal to the criterion of the cross is not part of a clever power strategy on his own behalf, but underlines his concern for the welfare of the entire community and for the effective living out of the gospel principle at Corinth. So he's saying, look, when I get there, I will sort this out. And I'm not interested in anybody's smart, smug, or high-flying reasoning. I want to know the fruit of all this nonsense you've gotten yourself into. Now, this this is a good question, what he means by this. That I'm going to come with a rod, but I want to know, the kingdom of God does not consist in talker, but in power. What's this power that he's speaking of? And it might be one of two things. I'm convinced it's the second, but I'll give you both. Might be this. Does sticking up for or claiming one preacher above another, Apollos or Paul or Cephas, save anyone? 
Does it have any power to save a lost soul? Well, no. It's not the gospel. And so it's powerless. The entire system is without the ability to act. You might bring people into the church. You might get a large congregation. You might get a big hearing. But will it save anybody? No. The only thing that has the power to save is the gospel. And the only thing which has the power to change the lives of the believers is still the gospel. So then why would you be so divided over personalities and other things that don't save? Over anything that doesn't save. It's foolishness of the highest order. Stick to what has real power, the the gospel. Champion that and, and not people and not movements and not opinions or ministries or anything else. Champion the gospel. That alone has power. Now that's true, but I don't think that's his point. I think his point is not only more subtle, but more powerful than that. It's in keeping with what he's just told us in the verses just above. I think his point is this. We'll find out if they merely profess true Christianity or if they live in the power of a Christianity that frees them from seeking importance or status from others either in the world or in the church. Are they living in that power? That they don't have to conform to the world's values. That's what I want to know. Not their clever talk. Not their wise reasonings. I want to know, are they living in the power of the gospel? Are they transformed by the power of the gospel so as to renounce seeking spiritual superiority or status over anyone else? That's power. It's freedom. I want to know if they're living in that kind of freedom. Can they live for Christ and to see men reconciled to God through the gospel and do so while rebuking the very things the world places so much importance on? Can they live crucified with Christ? Is the gospel's power evident in them in rejecting the world that the gospel might have its full power in bringing the lost to Christ? And of course then that's the very challenge we live with ourselves today, isn't it? (laughs) It's so timely. Transgression of biblical boundaries which leads to a distorted biblical identity. And so we need to add ourselves a, a fresh call to take up this spectacular ministry and to overcome the disempowering loss of biblical humility. That's, I think, the thread through this passage. Now, in closing, I want us to see that the sword of this passage cuts two ways for the sake of freedom. I'll use two terms, one you're familiar with, the other I've coined, so don't don't beat yourself up over it. The first phrase is this, some of you suffer under guilt by association. That is, your lack of income, your lack of social status, the trials you face, your lack of giftedness, somehow has made you feel as though you aren't a good witness or not living the victorious Christian life. Whatever that is. Somebody has to define that. It's not mentioned in scripture. Uh, Take up this passage and cut those cords of bondage off of you. Christ appoints us as a spectacle to the world, even to the angels, that such things are no part of our standing before God. And in fact, these very things are most useful for a witness 
because they're counter to the culture. It rebukes the world's emphasis on those things and shows how we live for an entirely different set of values. How our lives are meant to show the the true wealth to the world, the true status and, and the standing that comes only when you're in Christ, who himself was rejected for those very same things. Isn't this just the carpenter's son? Where did he get that learning? Isn't he the son of a single mother? As James 1.9 counsels, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. You think, you think you're not serving God because you're, you don't have this, this rah-rah Christianity? I got to tell you, that is just foolishness that we've been fed from the world and we've brought it into the church and put our stamp on it. The Christ has ordained to use you to make the wisdom and the values of this present world appear in all their bankruptcy before God. So don't be ashamed. Join Paul and the other apostles. Join Jesus himself in this spectacular ministry which is rooted in humility. What a wonderful place. I want you to be free of that, of that bondage that somehow you have to measure up to some weird standard somebody's foisted on you in that way. No, it's not true. But then there are those of you here who suffer from the bondage of legitimacy by association. And those chains are just as bad, maybe worse. They're, they're brutal. That because you read this author or listen to that preacher, or subscribe to this particular school of orthodoxy, or, or practice your Christianity in the purest way, or, or that your intellectual approach to Christianity gives you some supposed credibility in the world's eyes or in the eyes of some group within the broader church, this passage is meant to set you free from that. To take you someplace entirely different. To get you out from under the need to drop names and associate yourself with ministries or books or movements or particular churches in order to legitimize yourself. Seek Christ. That's Paul's goal. Repent from the way the world's values have crept into your heart and mind and look to Christ and to Christ alone. And once again, humility is at the root. We cannot make much of ourselves, much of our heroes, much of our favorites, much of our views, and make much of Christ at the same time. We've got to choose what it is we're going to exalt, who it is we're going to exalt, and it better be Christ. And yes, that's humbling from where we've been when we're, when we're tossing around names and ministries and, and book titles and and podcasts so that we can be thought of a certain way by certain people? We must choose those or him. We can't do both. And if he's given you worldly goods and a, a comfortable life and a modicum of su- success in the way that we think of it in, a, in America today, then reject any notion that somehow that makes you more loved or blessed or spiritual than those who haven't received the same. Cut those cords. Get rid of that bondage. Now, might I say, in Paul referring to not going beyond what is written, did Paul invent this? Let's go back to Jeremiah 9. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. 
Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Now Paul's, Paul's bringing us back to what's written. And might we, as a church, be willing to see where the world's viewpoints and values and methods may have crept into our own hearts and minds and reject them so that the gospel might have its unhindered power in working through us. Who cares what anyone thinks of us? Or even what we think of ourselves if we know that we are pleasing to the master above all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, I have to uh, admit my startledness at the relevance of your word. We read these words that were written around 2,000 years ago, and it's like you could have written them to us today. Father, I, I confess to you that I've too often fallen into these same traps myself. To legitimize ourselves by being united with this one or that one. To drop the names as a way of, of saying, see, I'm, I'm, with the, I'm with the real ones. Of a falling victim to the the world's concept of success rather than coming back always to remember that I'm supposed to be Christ's and on his mission. Make us willing spectacles to the world. Throwing off anything that in any way hinders the truth of the gospel to those around us. For we're not responsible for how they receive it, but to be faithful in it and we want to be that as a congregation I want that as an individual I pray that for your church here in this assembly and everywhere where the name of Christ is named by your spirit set us free to simply serve our master and look for that day when we will hear from your lips well done good and faithful servant Enter into the joy of the master. That's what we long for. Fill our hearts with it, we plead in Jesus' name. Amen.